One of the toughest questions to attempt to answer these days is why do Christians suffer? We've already noted that in the book of Revelation, it was written during a time of great suffering, of great persecution in the church. John, the author of the book of Revelation, well, he's been exiled to the island of Patmos because he was a follower of Christ. That's the only reason, because of this persecution that had fallen on the land. And we know by this point, all the disciples of Jesus have all since been killed. They've been martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard of a man named Polycarp before? I know that some of you have, maybe many of you haven't. Polycarp lived during the second century, and he was a Christian leader from the city of Smyrna. Now, Smyrna should sound familiar to you because the city of Smyrna was one of the places where the church received one of the seven letters from Jesus back in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Persecution was still very heavy during Polycarp's life. Roman leaders, they oppressed Christians during this time and, and they would arrest them and they would drag them off into the Colosseums and have them killed for sport and entertainment. The Christians were living under the constant pressure that if they didn't deny Christ and pledge their allegiance to Caesar, then they could be killed at any moment. Well, in 156 AD, the, the Roman magistrates of Smyrna, they decided that it's time to go after a, a big dog. They wanted to go after one of the leaders of the church. And so they decided to go after Polycarp. And so they arrested him. Polycarp was not a young man when they arrested him. No, no, no. He was 86 years old. Which means that he would have been alive during the same time that John was alive. Polycarp would have been a very young man and, and John would have been a very old man, but their lifespans would have crossed. And in fact, church history tells us that Polycarp was indeed a disciple of the apostle John. At any rate, Polycarp was a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ who was a leader in the church in Smyrna in the year 156 AD. And there is a written record of the events of what happened that I'm talking about that was written down around 160 AD. And if you ever take the time to go read that account of what happened, you will be blessed. But in short, Polycarp was arrested and he was threatened that he needed to deny Christ or they were going to put him to death. And I love Polycarp's response. I mean, it was one of those responses that has been recorded for all time to encourage Christians. Polycarp responded by saying this, 86 years I have served Christ and he has never wronged me. How could I now speak evil of my king and my savior? In other words, Polycarp was saying, do whatever you want to me, but I will never deny Jesus. Well, they burned him alive in front of a roaring crowd. Polycarp is just one in a long line of Christians who have suffered and died for their faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, since the earliest days of the church, all the way to today, Christians have been killed for following Jesus Christ. And, and I think about our country, and even though, you know, persecution is not an overt reality for us here in the United States, we must always remember that it is very much a reality for many Christians in many places around the globe. There are brothers and sisters in Christ who are suffering greatly. Like, like in China right now, where thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians meet in secret every week in what is known as the underground church. 
In recent years in China, there has been a mass coordinated effort by the communist government of China to suffocate and annihilate all of these underground churches. They're using brute force. They're using mass surveillance. They're, they're, they're compiling huge, massive amounts of data to root out any of these Christians who are worshiping in these, these underground churches, these unregistered churches. You see, according to the Chinese government, if you want to be a quote-unquote Christian, you have to do that on their terms. You have to go to church where they tell you to go to church. You have to practice your faith in the way they tell you to practice their faith. But even now, in the last couple of years, there's even been a massive crackdown on the government-controlled churches. They've gone in and they have pulled down all images of the cross and of Jesus. and They've really stripped these churches of anything remotely Christian. You know, like this church in Shangi province of Leafy City. This is a government-run, government-sanctioned church. And you see the big cross on top of it. But in this case, they didn't even bother to take the cross down. No, no, no. You know what they did? They just decided to blow up the entire church with dynamite. That's right. They just blew it up. There has been this calculated ramp up of persecution over these last couple of years in China, like I said, where brute force and mass surveillance and massive amounts of data um, compiling has been taking place. It's not easy to be a Christian in China. You know, when I use the phrase mass surveillance, this is what I mean. Uh, Right now, China is on pace to install 600 million face recognition-enabled CCT cameras in their country. That would be about one camera for every two citizens in China that will soon be recording all public spaces in the country of China. Like right now, every inch of every street in Beijing is already covered. These cameras are being forcibly installed anywhere the government wants them to be, including in church buildings, in other indoor spaces. Um, There's cameras pointed at offering boxes. They're watching who's giving what and, and, and what they're doing. To counter um, what they're doing in China with all the people wearing masks and helmets and sunglasses, what they've done is they've been able to set these cameras up to have gate recognition software. In other words, what this allows them to do is to recognize somebody from 50 meters away by simply analyzing a number of metrics in how he or she even walks. You know, one of my favorite shows uh, from a few years ago was a show called Person of Interest. Have you ever seen this show? I think it's on Netflix. You can go back and watch it. It stars Jim Caviezel. And it's this uh, story about how computers are watching everything we do. We are being monitored constantly. We are being surveyed and how these computers are even interacting and disrupting everyday people's lives. And in some ways, I wonder, wow, is this what's going on in China with this massive reach? Like right now in China, and this is what makes it so difficult for Christians, all communications in China, all activity on mobile phones, social media, on the internet is being recorded. Anyone applying for like a new mobile device or an internet device, they have to have their face scanned. They have to provide other biometric data, including fingerprints, DNA samples, blood samples are taken regularly to collect all this data. In certain regions of China, for example, if you even want to check into a hotel room, you have to do a mouth swab and they take your DNA before you can check in. 
I mean, really, the Chinese government is on path to track virtually every single person's movement and track their behavior and all of its citizens, including all those who attend church or, or might possibly have a Bible or give an offering to the church and, and where they might take those things and what they do with them are all being monitored by the government. Let, let me show you a video that just surfaced just a couple of days ago. According to the organization called Voice of the Martyrs, which is a fantastic ministry that tracks persecution around the world. This is a video of a raid on a house church in China just last Saturday. Here, watch this. Friends, we need to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ in China, but not only in China, but Christians all around the globe who are suffering for the only reason of the fact that they believe in Jesus Christ. Where they live every single day with the daily threat of beatings or kidnappings or being sold into slavery or going to jail or losing their homes or losing their families or even being put to death for being a Christian. We need to be lifting them up in prayer every single day. But you know, when we hear stories of what's happening around the globe about persecution, when we see videos like the one that I just showed you about these Christians meeting in, in an underground church home and the, and the government of China comes in and, and disrupts them and arrests everybody, the question that follows things like that is this. Hey, if God is so good, if God is all-powerful, surely he can do something about this, can't he? I mean, I know I'm not the only one that has ever wondered questions like, like that. Why do Christians suffer? And I'm not just talking about suffering from persecution, which was very much a reality in John's day. It's very much a reality in the 21st century. But I'm also talking about suffering in other ways. Like, why do Christians suffer of cancer or, or some other disease that, that befalls upon them? Why aren't Christians spared from some of these things? Or suffering from, from war? Or, or suffering from the sudden loss of a loved one. Or suffering from the sudden loss of perhaps a job or some other kind of devastating moment in a person's life. Well, why do we suffer such painful experiences? And why does God allow his children to get beat up? Would you believe it that Revelation chapter 6 and 7 contains some of the most encouraging words to Christians who suffer? If you haven't done so already, would you go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6? We're going to be spending our time in chapter 6 and some in chapter 7 today. And as you're finding that, let me just remind you that what we learned in chapter 4 is John has this vision of heaven where he sees God on his throne in all of his glory and all of creation is worshiping the Lord. And then in chapter five, we see <clears throat> that God is holding a scroll in his hand and this scroll is sealed with seven seals. It probably looked a lot like this picture of this scroll here at the bottom of the screen. It's, 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 it's parchment paper, it's rolled up and it has these wax seals that are sealing it shut. There's seven of them. It probably looks something like this. John visualized something like this. So John, as he sees this scroll in God's hand and it's sealed with these seven seals, we learn that he begins to weep and he's so sad because nobody in heaven is able to open these seals and unroll this scroll, this revelation. 
But then Jesus comes onto the scene. And not all hope is lost because Jesus, who John describes as, as, a, as a lamb, as one that has been slain, which is another image in apocalyptic literature of the victorious Jesus. No, no, no. John learns that Jesus can open this scroll. And when Jesus takes the scroll out of the hand of God, then all creation, all of heaven bow down and worship. And they sing songs to the Lord. And then they are accompanied by thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of, of angels that join in this worship. Literally all of heaven is worshiping. And we come to Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. And this is what it says. Read it with me. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Now, who is the I in this verse? When he says, I watch, we're talking about John. John watched, John observed in this vision, Jesus take the scroll out of God's hand. He observed everybody worshiping. And then after that, he watched Jesus begin to open these seals. He broke the seals on this scroll and started to open it up. And here is what the opening of these scrolls is like when you read it out loud all together without stopping. Look with me in verse one. I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to make peace on the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard a third living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. Then I heard the lamp open the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider's name was death and Hades was following close behind. They were given power over fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair and the whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to the earth and figs dropped from a fig tree and shaken like when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to, to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come, and who can withstand it? What in the world did we just read? Have you ever read Revelation? What was that? What did we just 
Read. Well, let me tell you where I'm at in my study today. We just read the first three revelations of the future. We just read the first of three revelations of the future, starting in John's time and finishing with the end of time. In the opening of these seven seals, John gives us a picture of the complete future in an abbreviated form. And he will do it like this again two more times in the book of Revelation. So the first picture of this complete future was the opening of these seven seals. The second picture of this complete future will start again in chapter 8 with the seven trumpets. And then the third picture of the complete future will start in chapter 16 with the seven bowls. And I think what's really important for us all to understand is that the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, they are all describing the same thing. They are all described the days we are living in and what will happen to those who reject the Lord at the end of time. The world comes to an end in chapter six. Did you read it? That's what John sees. And you, and you might be saying, oh, wait a minute. What do you mean, Joe, that the world comes to an end in chapter six? I thought the world comes to the end like in the book of Revelation. You know, you know in chapter one, where there's all this talk of the new heaven and, and the new earth. Well, what do you mean the world comes to the end right here in chapter six? If the world comes to the end in chapter 6, why do we have chapter 7 and 8 and 9 all the way up to 21? Well, there's a couple things to remember when studying the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, well, it's not laid out in chronological order. I mean, it's not like, hey, chapter 1, and then there's chapter 2, and chapter 3. And it's not like the book of Revelation, each chapter is outlining, you know, a new sequence of events that, that culminates at the end of time when you get to the end of chapter 21. That's not how Revelation, that's not how this apocalyptic literature is, is laid out. By the time we get to chapter 6, the end of the world has come. And then it will come to the end of the world again in chapter 8. And then it will come again to the end of the world in chapter 16. In fact, many people see that there are seven times in the book of Revelation that the world comes to an end. So the book of Revelation was not meant to be read in chronological order. Chapter 1 leads to chapter 2. Chapter 3 builds on chapter 4. And chapter 4, and it just builds, 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 builds. A sequence of events all the way to the end of the time. That's not how Revelation reads. Nor is the book of Revelation supposed to be read and interpreted as a predictor of the future. You know, the book of Revelation, and I've said this before, it is not some code that needs to be cracked. It's not like, oh, I see A plus B plus C equals D. Oh, this fits here, and this refers to here, and we create some kind of, of key to the code that predicts all of these events that must happen in the future. It would be wrong of us to read Revelation and say, oh, well, this can't happen because this hasn't happened, and oh, no, 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 we, we have nothing to worry about because this will never take place until this happens. The book of Revelation was not meant to be read as a predictor of the future. What is Revelation? 
Revelation is an unveiling of what is to come, not a predictor of specific events and timetables and codes that need to be broken. So in chapter 6, John sees Jesus open the seals of the scroll one by one, and every time Jesus opens one of these seals, something bad happens. Now, there are some who will interpret these bad things, that these catastrophes associated with these seals as a particular sequence of future events. But as I just mentioned, I, I don't believe, it's not my opinion, that we should interpret these seven seals in that way. You know, I, I agree with what Mark Moore said about these seven seals. He says this, this is not a description of what will take place, nor is this a description of what did take place. This, these seven seals, are a description of what always takes place. Now, I want to say that again because this is so significant as we understand and interpret the book of Revelation. As these seals are opened up, you know, this isn't a description of what will take place, and it's not a description of what did take place. This is a description of what always takes place. In every age, in every era of mankind, we see the kinds of things described in the openings of these seals in our world, all of which lead up to the end of time. These seals are descriptions of great suffering in our world that we've all witnessed before. So let's look at them quickly, one at a time. The first seal is opened, and what happens? Out comes a bow-carrying horseman riding a white horse who is bent on conquest. You know, a part of, of, of reading any scriptures is to ask the question, in context, how would have John's readers first interpreted this? How would they have understood what John is talking about? You know, most likely, when John writes about this bow-carrying horseman riding a white horse, that would have brought up images and thoughts of perhaps the, the Corinthian warriors that these first century Christians knew quite well. They were the only mounted archers of their day. But if we think about through the course of all time, we can think of many examples of men and nations who were bent on conquest. So what does this first seal represent? This first seal represents military conquest, which we have been observers of all throughout history. Then the second seal is opened, and what happens? Out comes a fiery red horse that's carrying a long sword. This is somebody, this is a guy who disrupts peace everywhere he goes. And isn't it true? Couldn't we all say that there has not been a day in any of our lives where we can say it was at complete peace? No, we haven't experienced a day like that. I doubt if you took all the history books that have ever been written about everything that we can think of in history, they would not contain every battle between every tribe and every nation. You know, and not just battles between nations and, and tribes. I'm talking about battles between even friends and families and, and co-workers and, and the reality that every day somebody kills somebody else and there are fights to be had. Friends, we don't live in a day of peace. And this second seal really represents conflict and bloodshed and this day that there is no peace. Then the third, third seal is opened up and here's what happens. Out comes a black horse whose rider is holding a pair of scales. So think about it like a weight scales. So this rider is coming out. Conflict and bloodshed, as we all know, has severe consequences, doesn't it? 
You know, a lot of the hardships that people suffer today are the result of conflicts and wars from other people. You turn on the news and you hear about some country that's in a civil war or, or they're going to battle with a neighboring country. What is often the result of that conflict? Well, refugees, people fleeing the country, setting up refugee camps. They don't have a home. They are displaced. They don't have food. They don't have jobs. Life is very hard. Nothing is easy. Famines are not an uncommon thing on our planet. Drought strikes areas, insects devour crops, crops fail, people suffer. This third seal represents famine, economic hardships, distress that's caused in our world that we see all around us. Then the fourth seal is opened up and what happens? Out comes a pale horse and its rider's name is death. Isn't it true that we have never experienced a day in our lives where death wasn't all around us? There's not a one of us that doesn't experience death. Whether death comes by conflict or death is an accident or death is from natural causes, there is no escaping death. We, we have images of caskets and funerals and graveyards and weeping families left behind due to all the experiences that people have and will have with death. We all will endure it. And many of you watching me right now can honestly say that you have experienced far more death in your life than you ever could imagine that you were gonna have to endure. You see, this fourth seal represents death itself. Now, if we took a pause right there and we examined these first four seals, we would see that they very much look like things that we experience every day, that we see in our world all throughout time. We see military invasions, conflict, bloodshed, famines, economic hardships, even death itself. I think it's pretty easy to conclude that these are not descriptions so much of what will take place, nor are they descriptions of what did take place. No, these are descriptions of what always takes place. These are the things that have been happening around the globe since the day that John saw this revelation from Jesus on the island of Patmos. You know, when I was in seminary, I had to take two semesters of the Greek language. You know, this is the original language of the New Testament, the original language of the book of Revelation. And I wish that I could stand here today and tell you that I came out of those two semesters studying Greek as a Greek expert. I can't tell you that because it's not true. I am not a Greek expert of all. I think it'd be so cool if I could open up my Greek New Testament and I could read it in Greek and translate it into English on the spot. I know guys that can. I certainly can't. Sometimes I wonder if I really learned anything at all during those two semesters of Greek. But in reality, I did learn some things. And I learned enough, and I have access to ample resources that are able to track with the experts. So when they write about it and they talk about these original language, I can understand the references they make. I can understand, in essence, what they're trying to communicate. And when I read the experts on the original Greek language of these first four seals, it definitely seems the original language in Greek seems to indicate that God allows or God permits these kind of troubles that are represented by these four horsemen of the apocalypse, these first four seals, to continue in the world for a period of time. In other words, the prophecy is true for this is exactly the way the world has been unfolding from the time of John to the present day. And then we come to the fifth seal. And when this fifth seal is open, what do we see? 
We see Christian martyrs who have died for their faith. Christians dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. That has always happened. Christian persecution is on the rise. This is gonna blow you away, but did you know that at the end of the 20th century, they calculated all the Christians who had been martyred for their faith, and they discovered that more Christians had died for their faith in Jesus during the 20th century than all the other centuries combined. No, the persecution of Christians, the, the martyrs for the faith, no, that is a very much a reality that's happening all around us. We're shielded from it because we're not experiencing here in America, but millions of Christians around the world are not shielded from this reality. The, the 21st century that we're living in now, although I don't have data to confirm this, I would suspect that the 21st century is shaping up to be another record-breaking century when it comes to Christian persecution. Look at Revelation 6, 9 again. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, John says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Did you notice something familiar with that language? This is the exact reason why John is exiled to the island of Patmos. Remember back in, in, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, John says, I'm on this island because of the word of God and the testimony. No, this is acknowledgement. No, these Christians, these martyrs have died because of the word of God, because of the testimony. They, they are died because they, they profess Christ as Lord. Every age has seen Christians persecuted and killed for the word of God and this testimony. So the fifth seal represents Christian persecution, Christian martyrs, those who have died for their faith. And in John's vision, these martyrs, they cry out in a loud voice and they, they cry out to God, how long are you gonna wait, Lord, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? In other words, Lord, how long are you gonna wait until you make this right? All these people that took our lives, when are you gonna come back and when are they gonna get theirs? That, that's what we're reading. And the Lord replies and, and he says, you need to wait just a little bit longer. And he gives them, did you catch this when we read the text? He gives these martyrs white robes. What are white robes? White robes, white clothes, the color white. This is the wardrobe of the saved in the book of Revelation. It's their dress code. These are people who have already died. These are people who are saved. They are right now with Jesus. They are waiting anxiously for the return of Christ. They are ready for the Lord to come back. And they are waiting for the Lord to issue the final judgment on the wicked and to set everything right. I'll look at these first five seals and they represent things that have always taken place. Always been military invasions, always been conflicts, always been bloodshed, always been famines, always economic hardships, and always been death. There has always been the death of Christians. This is probably what Paul was referring to in Romans chapter 8 verse 22 when he said this, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. You know, we are living in the last days. We are living in what, you know, Scripture refers to as the labor pains, the groanings of creation. These first five seals are describing the last days that we've been living in since Acts chapter 2. Now, now let me just stop right there and say something again, that, 
This is where I'm at in my study of the book of Revelation. This is not how everyone interprets the opening of these seals. And I want you to know that it really is okay. It, it really is. You might recall from the very first message that I pre preached in this series on Revelation, and I, and I made this statement, maybe you remember it. I said that I would be shocked if we get to the end of our study together and we have all landed in the exact same place. I said, I would be shocked if that happens because, because Christians have been studying Revelation for hundreds and hundreds of years and they don't land on the exact same spot. I, I'm telling you where I land on interpreting the book of Revelation. That's what I'm sharing with you from my study, the heart of my study. What I wanna encourage you to continue to do and what I choose to do uh, when it comes to things like this is this. We're gonna stay humble before God and we're gonna stay gracious with one another. That's what we're gonna do. The bigger picture of the book of Revelation, regardless of how exactly you interpret the, the, un, the unsealing of these seals, the, the breaking of these seals, however you see that, the bigger picture is this, right? We all agree, God wins, we win, the devil is defeated forever. All interpretations, no matter how you interpret the, these seven seals, they all lead to that singular conclusion. God wins, we win, the devil is defeated, we get to be with the Lord forever. Where we end up is with Jesus. So the broader message of what's going on here in Revelation is, you better be ready. Be ready, be prepared, quit messing around with your life, quit running the risk of being caught unprepared for when the, the Lord returns. Because if you're not ready on that day when Jesus comes back, if you are not ready when you meet your end here on earth, then what lies ahead will not be good for you. Regardless how, however you interpret these seven seals, if you are not ready, you have indeed a big problem on your hands. In my study, the first five seals are describing the last days which we have been living in since Acts chapter two. And then we come to the sixth seal. And when the seal is, this sixth seal is open up, what do we see? There is a great earthquake. Something is different with this sixth seal. Something has changed. In, in prophecy, earthquakes are typically a signal of God's judgment, God's wrath coming. We see that the sun turns black, the, the moon turns blood red. We start seeing images, John does, of stars in the sky fall to earth. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. Every mountain and island is removed from its place. What are we seeing here with this sixth seal? This sixth seal represents the end of time. John is describing now the final judgment. This is the day of Christ's wrath against the enemies of God. Look down at verse 15 again. Then the kings of the earth. See, when that happens, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free. In other words, everyone who was not ready for this. They hid in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. This was a terrifying experience for them. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Do you understand what they're crying out? We would rather have the rocks from mountains fall and crush us than face God's wrath. Oh no, this is a terrifying thing. 
This says, verse 17, for the great day of the wrath has come and who can withstand it? I agree with commentator writer Christopher A. Davis about the opening of the sixth seal when he says, for Christians who serve God, it will be the dawn of salvation. But for those who oppose God, described here, it will be a terrifying judgment and condemnation. The sixth seal represents the end of time. And then if you were to fast forward to chapter eight, there's, there's an interlude at the end of chapter six, all through chapter seven. We'll come back to that in a second. But you get to chapter eight, it says this. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. You gotta remember in apocalyptic literature, the number seven means what? It means complete. It means whole. It means this is done. It's over. Judgment has happened. And there was quiet in heaven for about half an hour. You know, I want to be clear that none of these seals were meant to be read to help us, you know, identify exact references, exact times, or exact dates. And in fact, uh, if anybody ever says to you, hey, I know exactly when the Lord's going to come back, or I know what month is going to happen, or I know what's going to happen, you can dismiss it completely because the Bible's very clear. Nobody knows. So we shouldn't read the book of Revelation as a code to be broken or, or, or something that will help us determine references and dates and times and things like that. The seals don't help us pinpoint exact moments when Jesus will return. Rather, what these seals do is they simply point us to be warned. The point of these seals is to be warned. He who has ears, let him hear. And at the beginning of this message, I talked about the persecution of Christians today. And I threw out this question, why does God allow Christians to get beat up? Why doesn't God step in and do something? Well, if you think about these seals, if you think about this, you know, this, this view of, of today and the end of time, they represent military invasions, con conflict, bloodshed, famines, economic hardship, even death. That's what these seals represent. All of that, all of what is happening in our world throughout time and to this very day, it screams to this reality. Not everything is as it should be. You read through the opening of these seals, that just jumps out of you. This is not how God designed it. This, this is not God's original vision. There's something very broken going on in our world. You, you look back, you go back to the, to the garden in Genesis, Genesis and you understand that sin and the devil has really done a number on this world. It's done a number on God's creation. It's not right. And it won't be right until the Lord returns again and makes it right. And in the meantime, all Christians are caught up in the middle of all this brokenness. What's very clear throughout the scriptures is that this world is broken and it will not be right again until the Lord returns and makes it right. And so we have military conquest, we have war, we have conflict, we have famine, we have all these things. It's, a, it's an outcry of brokenness and Christians, you and me, we are caught up right in the middle of all this Brokenness, we are not spared. Nowhere in scripture does it say that Christians are spared from the consequences of this cursed planet. No, we are living right in the middle of it. I love how Matt Proctor describes it when he writes, before Jesus comes back, things are gonna get bad. There's gonna be some pretty bad things. 
But while God allows these judgments to fall on unrepentant sinners in hopes of awakening them, Christians are sometimes, unfortunately, caught in the crossfire. When we have Christians who live through military conflicts and they get killed or they endure all the terrible outcomes of war, of ungodly people, that's Christians getting caught in the crosshairs of what's broken. Christians who have to live through all kinds of hardships, whether it be famine or failed crops or economic downfall or or whatever. It's Christians being caught in the crosshairs of what's broken. When, When Christians have to experience death and they experience losing a loved one, a tragic loss, it also serves as a reminder that we live in a broken world God's got a better vision for the future, but until the Lord returns, we're caught in the crosshairs of that brokenness. Christians who have to live through persecution, our brothers and sisters in Christ in China who are being arrested and killed and, 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 and despised. It's a reminder that this world is very broken. In, in many ways, this world is godless and the devil is having his way. And, and Christians get caught up in the crosshairs of that brokenness. And there's this huge question that is presented at the very end of chapter six. And the question is a simple one. Who can stand? Who can stand all this? Who can stand up under all of this? And then you move into chapter seven and we're not gonna get much into chapter seven today. But the answer to that question is found through almost every verse of chapter seven. Who can stand? And the answer in chapter seven is the people of God can stand. That's who can. Who can be caught in the crosshairs of a broken world and still stay faithful and stand strong in the name of Jesus to the very end? God's people can. Let's read a couple verses. Look at verse nine of chapter seven. John says, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every tribe, from every nation, people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes. Again, what are white robes? It's the dress code of the saved. These are all saved people. And all these saved people are holding palm branches. What is palm branches symbolic of? Joy, celebration. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. John sees the multitude of saved people. Chapter 7 mentions this number of 144,000. And that, that number has been the source of a lot of confusion and in different interpretations. You know, it's really quite simple, actually. 144,000. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. Numbers mean something. And 144,000 is really just a symbolic number, meaning the people of God. You know, in the New Testament, it talks about the new Israel. These are people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what's represented here in this 144,000. We know it's symbolic because the number is actually much larger than that because what John sees is a great multitude of people that nobody can count and not just from Israel, but from every tribe, every people, every language, every nation. These are people that John is seeing who have been marked and sealed and are all wearing white robes. These are people who have been clothed in salvation. And a question gets asked in verse 13 says, these that are in white robes, these people, who are they? Where did they come from? Where did all these saved people come from after all these seals have been opened? 
And the answer is, sir, you know where they're from. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. In other words, the, the, the end of time, what has been happening ever since, since Acts chapter 2, these birth pains, these labor pains that we've all been living in, these last days, these are those who have come out of these last days we're living in. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne, pay very close attention, what is He going to do for these people who are dressed in white? He will shelter them in his presence. Now think about somebody who is being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. What would that mean to them to say they will be sheltered in the presence of God? Many of these people have been, have lost their shelter. They are exposed and God said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to bring them in. This would be a real word of encouragement to them. He is never again, verse 16, will they hunger? Never again will they thirst. I can guarantee you that persecuted Christians around the world throughout all time, they have known hunger, they have known thirst. And the Lord's saying, I'm gonna take care of that. The sun will not beat down on them nor any other scorching heat. In other words, their lives will not be made to suffer any longer. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will do what? He will wipe every tear from their eye. There is not a persecuted Christian who has not cried out in the rivers full of tears and God said, I'm gonna wipe all of those tears away in the end. You see, what we're reading here is a promise from God that suffering does not last forever. And if you were living in the first century and you were being persecuted for your faith in Jesus, or you're living today in the 20th century, 21st century, like in China, where they're having their, their underground church houses broken into, and the government is arresting the members of the church and throwing them in prison. Or if you're somebody that has endured a hardship that is a result of living in this broken world that we're in, that we're in where death is everywhere and pain is inevitable and suffering abounds in all kinds of forms. No matter who you are, what kind of suffering you're enduring, chapter seven reminds us that we are all marked by God, that God is still on his throne and heaven is real and all this suffering won't last forever. So let me encourage you, church. Be encouraged from chapter six and chapter seven. Don't abandon the Lord. He has not abandoned you. Don't give up on your faith. The Lord wins. And so do we. Let me pray for us. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, I just first and foremost as always thank you for the scripture that you have given to us. Thank you, God, that you gave John this vision. And yes, Lord, there's parts that at times are hard to understand and, 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 and Lord, we have to really think through and, but, but Lord, I, I'm thankful for the hope. I'm thankful that this truth comes through loud and clear that suffering doesn't last forever. That, that we are marked by you, that you recognize us, that in the end of time, we will be spared from any wrath that you have coming, that you are still on your throne. Heaven is real, and this won't last forever. Lord, we take great um, faith and hope in the promise of knowing that what right now is broken, you one day will make right. 
again. Lord, my prayer is that you help us all be faithful to the end. Lord, give us a boldness that we have not known before. Lord, give us the words when we, when we have not had them before. Lord, may we live out each and every day of our lives knowing that you could come back at any moment and we have been warned to be ready. Lord, I pray we live such faithful lives that when we see you coming, it will be met with so much joy when we get to be with you forever. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.